can't tell you how many people I sat at dinner with or at a poker table with or had drinks with or sat next to an airplane and everyone said I had that idea. I came up with that thing yeah. and it was the thing that someone else turned into a big business. And even when you have the same thing, you can give the same IP or the same technology or the same thing to 10 different entrepreneurs or 10 different businesses or 10 different investors and nine of them won't work and maybe one of them will work. So you never know what path, what team and what it's going to take to take a concept or a discovery or an invention and make it into a business that generates money. Welcome everyone to this two-part episode of Into the Impossible with special guest, visionary investor and business leader, David Friedberg. You're going to find out why companies like Alphabet and BlackRock trust this guest to invest over $300 billion of their capital to transform agriculture and other vital industries. Be forewarned, dear listeners, this two-parter may feel a bit like drinking from a fire hose. Our host, Brian Keating, dives deep with David into a wide range of topics, from successful entrepreneurship styles, investing strategies, how to incentivize science, and the problems with commercializing institutional research and inventions. Mr. Friedberg provides rare insight into his strategies for achieving his almost superhuman productivity, his investing strategies, a tutorial on the microbiome, his thoughts on AI, the biology of aging, and so much more. Stay in touch with Professor Keating by signing up for his mailing list at briankeating.com list. And if you have a .edu email, we'll send you a piece of deep space in the form of a rare meteorite fragment. While you're pondering this immersive discussion, please consider investing in us with a five-star rating and sharing your thoughts in a review. Like this one from TJ in New York City. Dr. Keating does a great job of making complex topics interesting and entertaining. I enjoy the guests and every episode has an interesting takeaway. Definitely worth checking out. Now, get ready to stretch your perspectives with host Brian Keating going into the impossible with the inimitable David Friedberg. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring a fellow attendee of the University of California, in this case, Berkeley, way up north. Uh, and it is uh, David Friedberg, who I've been a fan of for many years. He's an entrepreneur investor. He's worked uh, with Google. He's worked on uh, solving the problems of climate change. He's worked in agriculture. and uh, But like I said, most important thing is that he's a proud son of the University of California, uh, even if it is that one up north and not here in San Diego. David, welcome to Into the Impossible. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a great, great amount of fun kind of talking with friends and getting them to solicit questions uh, for you, and and hopefully I'll have a fun conversation about science, about about the future of sustainability in science, about nuclear energy, about biotech. Uh, we're going to dive deep because you are an astrophysics, you were an astrophysics major at Cal, and uh, you, I think it's probably true, David, that you've you've probably taught more people some really deep and beautifully, delightfully nerdy science on your podcast, which you're one of the four besties on the All In podcast. I'm not going to speak very much about that fair warning, full disclosure, 
But through the science corner, which uh, I think we're going to start with, you have really brought to light to the masses, to millions of people. Your podcast is one of the most popular in the, in the whole world. Um, really deep dives into things like fusion, decarbonization. Um, and most recently, you've taught, you know, probably 10 million people what uh, what ribosomes do for a living. So the first question I want to ask you is what what drives your curiosity? What what um, kinds of things spur your curiosity that then become a you know, part of the science corner? What, what kind of things uh, does it take to get your attention on a scientific topic? I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of subscriptions to journals and, um, you know, I, they all come to my inbox every week and I kind of scroll through articles. Then there's certain topics that I tend to have kind of deep dives in where I'm spending time on something. Uh, and then something in, kind of catches my interest and I go deeper on it and further on it. And then, um, you know, all of a sudden I come across something that I'm like, holy crap, does the world know about this? This is amazing. And <laughs> I feel like sometimes I have to talk about it. I will say like on the science corner on our podcast, I very rarely get to talk about the things I want to talk about or talk about them as much as I'd like to talk about them. I feel like we barely scratched the surface on the awe and wonderment of the universe and all that's out there and all that people should be thinking about and the, the humbling nature of the discoveries made through scientific endeavor. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's great to share some of those moments with people and, 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 you know, get people intrigued and whatnot. But um, man, we uh, we we live really uh, just at the the surface of the lake, uh, if you will. So, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot 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 of papers, a lot of research, a lot of blogs, a lot of yeah, whatever I can kind of come across, books, etc. You mentioned journals, and then aside, by the way, like like I, I will say, like speaking to scientists, they'll often make recommendations on books, mm. and then you read these books and takes you down a whole nother rabbit hole. Yeah, so. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you some books that I think you'll enjoy, or at least will cure your insomnia. Because yeah. they're my books, but but no, there are other books that I'd love to get uh, get your eye, eyeballs on. Um, so you mentioned journals. You subscribe to journals. Um, I got into trouble recently on Twitter because I tweeted out that you know peer review is the worst form of scientific fact checking, except for all the others. You know, kind of aping Winston Churchill's uh, sobriquet on democracy. Um, what do you think about peer review? I, I know your your forte, especially, is obviously you're trained in physics, astrophysics, but you have this uh, special panache for for biotech and biology, um, and we'll get to that in great depth later. But um, on the subject of peer review, what what do you think of the replication crisis? The you know kind of pay to play journals. Uh, what do you see as the future? Or what would you do differently than peer review, if anything? Yeah, I know a lot of people want to see these kind of decentralized models emerge. I hope that there's more experimentation around them and that they and that there there is some resolution. I don't love the fact that these journals charge these subscription fees and that they're really, you know, you have to get in a name brand journal in order to get recognition. I think that, um, you know, a lot of the preprint um, uh, publishing uh, op options are a really great way to get started. But I would say that there's probably one thing that's super critical um, that's lacking, which is there's often an amplification of something maybe a little early in the cycle of it kind of achieving some degree of consensus. Let's use the word consensus because there should never be absolute consensus in science. So as you make progress uh, towards having greater consensus, uh, maybe there's a moment at which point it, it makes sense to have some amplification. Mm. And often we see these kind of preprints that maybe aren't replicable, get a ton of amplification, they become kind of mainstay, they become accepted, that becomes fact. And then anything against it is, is you know, hey, you're disputing fact, you're disputing science. Um, so one of the things that I think is deeply missing in the amplifiers, uh, whether they're Twitter people or journalists or what have you, 
is a, a kind of a better sense of sci uh, scientific literacy um, and the ability to kind of interpret scientific data and results um, and then recognize that that data and results that can and should change under maybe different conditions or should be demonstrated by other testers. Because um, often I'll see someone pick something out of a paper uh, or they'll miss the real point of the data and they'll say something that maybe isn't quite true or they'll jump on amplifying something that isn't quite there yet. Um, so uh, certainly from, from, a, from a process perspective, we need to kind of get scientific literacy rates and, and have a peer review system that isn't contingent on this kind of uh, commercial piping where <laughs> you kind of uh, you know, have to pay to get access uh, to the right journals and then you have to pay to get access to the content in those journals. It's, it, it's all, you know, science should be open, uh, the data should be open, and there should be kind of a much more free-for-all open source voting process to support these things. What form that takes, I don't have a strong opinion. I haven't spent much time thinking about it. I know that there's lots of different ideas out there. Yeah, one, one idea that's been floated by, you know, uh, hopefully future guests on the podcast, former UCSD professor Andrew Huberman, you know, is like NFTs and science, you know, where you, uh, you know, you pay, uh, you know, to the Friedberg microscope and you look down and you, you get the first, you know, picture of some, you know, uh, the, the next thing you're going to dump into uh, into a super gut. I don't know. I'm just making this up. But but the point is you could use a, an, an NFT model uh, to support science. What do you think about that kind of suggestion? And could you see that, you know, reverting back to the patronage of the Medici's? And could you see a, a, a downside of that potentially? Yeah, I don't know. That that feels a little quirky to me because um, I think it implies decentralized funding. I don't think you need decentralized funding. Like, you know, all, all these systems of decentralized networks, um, they're not necessarily the best way to solve a problem. <laughs> like, um, you know, if you remember back in the day, Skype was like a peer-to-peer -peer, like communication system and the latency was high and the bit, a lot of bits were lost along the way. And so Skype didn't end up winning, right? Like Zoom and, and Google Meet and Microsoft Teams won because they had a more robust centralized network model that worked, uh, the data would be transmitted to the center of the network and more efficiently routed back to the uh, to the consumer. And uh, same with a company called Juiced, which made this peer to peer video sharing. Right. And I think uh, um, Kazaa and Napster, yep. all these peer to peer systems were less efficient. Um, they're, they're kind of trying to solve a problem uh, in the least efficient way or in a less efficient way than maybe a centralized model. So I don't think that it's about decentralized funding. I think it's about, um, you know, we, we can aggregate more money through a central source, like some federal grants or um, or what have you. Uh, I, there's another interesting model I'll share in a minute, which is um, kind of private enterprises that can aggregate large pools of capital and then allocate them within that pool uh, in a way uh, that maybe has smarter capital allocators than and, and, and a faster turnaround time on allocating capital than, say, a government source. The problem with decentralized networks is often you see um, adverse selection. Uh, you see this in like the insurance industry. The term is often used, the adverse selection, mm. where um, it's the best storyteller that wins, not necessarily the best candidate. Mm. Uh, and so we saw this with like, um, you know, all these ICOs, these uh, initial coin offerings, or even with FTX. Uh, it, it's easy to take advantage of people. It's easy to take advantage of a distributed network of funders. Versus having someone who has the criteria and the ability to kind of screen things in a smarter way uh, than, say, um, a lot of people who then get drawn into some uh, story and then they, they lose a lot of money and things don't go well. So I'm not sold on the decentralized funding model as much as I am on just, um, you know, having more transparency and functioning around how do we fund things. 
through centralized aggregated pools of capital. Yeah, and to that extent, there, there's a lot of the you know journal uh, <clears throat> kind of peer review process that's you know resembles the academic proposal and grant writing process in that it's not transparent. Right. There's no feedback. I just had a young student, brilliant young man, and he applied for a fellowship and they actually wanted him to apply for this fellowship. Uh, and he just got summarily rejected um, and he got no feedback. And, and at least with a journal or, you know, system, you do get feedback. There are at least two people that typically will review. I've been a reviewer for Nature and Science and all these journals. And there's usually at least two people, but not much more than that. And at the proposal level, yeah. it's much worse even. And and that sort of makes me want to pivot. Although you did say, did you, you had another model that you wanted to suggest, or uh, in that front, or, or is that is that part of that? Well, you know, there's a there's a there's a group there's a group that got funded last year called Altos Labs. Mm. They raised about three billion dollars in startup funding, and they're pursuing um, this kind of uh, uh, epigenetic partial uh, reprogramming uh, of um, of cells. Uh, to make them more youthful, right? These Yamanaka factors, mm -hmm. which won the, the Nobel Prize a number of years ago, demonstrated the ability to kind of uh, right, uh, in, induce pluripotent uh, stem cells uh, from any cell. So you can kind of apply these factors and they uh, kind of uh, rewrite the uh, epigenome of the cell and the cell starts to act like a pluripotent stem cell. And it turns out that what's being called partial reprogramming allows the cell to act more youthful. Yeah. Um, and uh, and kind of resets the epigenome not all the way to being a stem cell, but to being the type of cell it is. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that and, and and that cell actually starts to function more effectively. So it's kind of this uh, youthful indicators are, are through the roof. It's really an incredible um, set of demonstrations. It often ends up causing cancer, however, uh, because these cells, some of the cells, go all the way to being stem cells, and then they start proliferating right. uncontrollably, and you have the, these kind of cancer problems. Um, so it's it's a it's a very difficult kind of bioengineering problem to figure out how we're going to make this work therapeutically. So this company, um, Altos Labs, got stood up. I think they raised $3 billion from Bob Nelson, who's like one of the best biotech investors in the world, and Yuri Milner, and Jeff Bezos. A lot of people put money in. And they've been going out and just grabbing some of the best academic and research teams out there that are like, they, they brought a ton of people out from UCSF. Mm. And I think part of the pitch to them was, look, you guys can make a decent salary working here, and you don't need to go through this multi-year grant writing process. We have good, smart capital allocators who will make very quick decisions at the top. Everyone will see it. It'll all be very open and transparent. You'll get this funding, and then your team and your work can continue to do their research, and 100% of the IP will be owned by the holding company. And right now, all the IP would technically be owned by UC or UCSF in this case. Um, now it's going to be held by this holding company, but the benefit to the research team, to the scientists, is you get very fast turnaround times. You don't have to wait. You don't have to kind of you know, get dolled out little small checks here and there from these grants, spending a third of your time writing grants, and then, you know, reporting back in, in a way that allows you to get your next grant, and maybe doing things that are a little bit um, disincentivizing. Mm. So um, I think it's a really interesting model. I'm really curious to see what comes out of Altos Labs, given that the number of teams that they've gone out and like vacuumed up from academia, the probability of that portfolio of teams having a breakthrough or a set of breakthroughs um, that has commercial success is very high. Yeah. Um, and so it's enough capital to give you enough shots on goal that one of these things will work. One of these teams will come up with something that you can kind of develop. And then they own 100% of it instead of going to UCSF and trying to negotiate an IT license and waiting years for that and so on. Um, which I think is the traditional model of these biotech companies getting set up. Right. And, and I look at that and I contrast it with, you know, basic physics, the type of research I do, uh, which is also, you know, becoming more and more supported by private foundations. My observatory that I co-lead 
It's called the Simons Observatory after Cal grad Jim Simons, a uh, long-term yep. uh, supporter of cosmology and basic science, as well as autism and and, and uh, uh, many other fields. But he's often criticized, you know, like, well, what's this privatization of science and basic, you know, it should be free. Everything should be free. And aren't these billionaires just going to get whatever they want? I mean, you hear Bill Gates criticized uh, uh, incessantly for the work that, you know, kind of. I wonder in in and that's in cosmology, you know what I'm doing, or you know the, Jim Simons is supporting, you know, just just personally, um, or you know the team, not me personally. But but the point being, um, in a field like biotech, where you have you know implications on human health, and and you have you know the risks and human subjects volunteering, is there a risk of you know the privatization kind of attracting you know really the unwanted attention you know the you didn't build this kind of ethos that well yeah you're you're just coming in and screaming uh, skimming the cream off the top after these universities public universities have put so much into it and how is it fair that some billionaires can you know profiteer off of this so what what do you how would you answer such critics okay so i'm a big believer in the efficiency of markets and a market has a buyer and a seller and if a buyer is willing to pay what a seller wants for something, um, a transaction will take place. Um, and so y- you have to have um, a-, a market and a- where-, where there are buyers and sellers coming together uh, for things to sustain themselves. Otherwise, they're being force-fed and they're not real. So you know, we'll-, we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later. But the term sustainability for me, I think, needs to be thought about in the context of how sustainable is this sustainability endeavor. And sustainable meaning... How much will the market support it without some massive intervention uh, driving it? Because otherwise, it's not what the customer wants. It's not what the buyers want. It's what some side of the market is trying to push into the market, and they're subsidizing it or reducing the price. And so those are all really bad things. And on the flip side, if they're holding things back that the market wants to buy, that's also really bad if the sellers aren't willing to sell what the market wants to buy. So I am all for private enterprises and people allocating their own capital and having hundreds or thousands or millions of businesses and entrepreneurs coming up with ideas, bringing them to the market, seeing if there's buyers and investing capital and making those pursuits. I am absolutely in support of basic research, product development happening in private enterprises to see that there is a marketplace for things. Because once money starts coming in, it funds the next cycle and these things can kind of keep going. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the academic and, and government sense, um, if there, is, there are some early stage efforts in, in, in pure science and research that are unfundable from a capital markets perspective because the time horizons are too far out and the uncertainty is too great. And it, you, know, you have to spend $100 billion or $20 billion, and then maybe you have a 5% chance at a breakthrough. I mean, look at how much the, uh, the, the ITAR facility right. <laughs> in France is going to cost. It's, I think it's at $30 billion at this point. Right. There is no marketplace to support that. Um, there is no... I, look, I'm a donor uh, to Lick Observatory at, at, uh, at UC... Uh, Alex Filipenko, who you may know is a good yeah, friend of mine. Good friend of mine yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, and so I am, uh, you know, very much in support of funding uh, uh, pure science. There's a lot of work that's gone on at UCSF. One of the advantages UCSF has, uh, for example, is they also have access to a, a patient community where they can get incredible data um, and, uh, and get in field uh, very quickly. So, so they do have an advantage in being able to kind of generate new, new science and new discoveries. The challenge arises that that um, science then either gets licensed out in a way that UC doesn't benefit enough from the discovery that was made, where they own the IP, um, or they're just not open sourcing it. Those are the two problems. And what happens often is something in the middle. And that thing in the middle is where like you end up with some guy who thinks he's too smart, and he's the licensing guy, and he goes out and he tries to negotiate one deal with 
and you know, the, the smart VC comes to him and he takes him to dinner and drinks. And he's like, okay, I'll take 6% of your company and you get the license to this day. 6% of the company for the IP, you see should own 100% on day one. Mm-hmm. And then the VCs should kind of compete for who's willing to pay what to get access to that IP. There's no competitive auction model. Um, there's no model that really maximizes the value of the IP that was generated by UC in that case or a research institution. That's one way is that the research institution can either maximize the value for the investment that they're making. And if they did and they could capture a piece of that, there would be incredible returns. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation funded a biotech startup that did peer research, uh, came through with a breakthrough therapeutic. That company sold the royalties and the license on that. And Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, I think, netted $3 billion or something out of this outcome. Um, And I think that's the model that the academics and the research institutions should be taking, which is maximizing value and doing it in a way that's really structured. So it's an auction, it's a a market-based model versus one guy kind of, you know, and I've I've tried to license stuff from universities. I've tried from Harvard, from MIT, from UCSF. And I got to tell you, all these guys operate differently. It's impossible to get through to anyone. Um, It's impossible to wrangle these things out. The IP just kind of sits there and languishes. Mm -hmm. They, They have these incredible breakthroughs. They publish on them. And then you as an enterprising business that's willing to put a billion dollars behind it to bring it to market and make it real, can't get access to it. And when you do get access to it, where someone gets access to it, they're usually an insider who gets a good deal on it. And then the university doesn't benefit as much as they should. The other alternative is to just open source everything. Mm -hmm. And that's another way to say, look, the government's going to fund or the university is going to fund X billion dollars over this amount of time. And everything that comes out is available to everyone. um, And and let the market proliferate and figure out how do you take that IP forward and build businesses on top of it. I think both of those models can work. The problem is we have a model that kind of doesn't provide it. Yeah. We have the Schrodinger's uh, model. Uh, just to push back with uh, yeah. love and respect. So we had uh, an exchange of, you know, capital for labor, you know, here. And, when, and it resulted in a strike, a, a very well-publicized strike at the University of California, including up there at Cal and down here in San Diego. And uh, graduate students and postdocs and, and kind of the lifeblood of the university went on strike, essentially saying, you know, that their contract was unfair. And yes, they... People had agreed to, uh, you know, to sell something and there was a willing buyer and a willing seller, but no more. And I wonder, you know, maybe pivoting that to to this notion that, well, okay, so if capitalism is the best system, uh, you know, then scientific capitalism is always going to rely on labor at some level. Now, the the problem I had with the graduate students, as much as I love them, and they do become part of your family. I mean, I had my graduates, some of my graduate students at my wedding. Um, you know, I, I've been to, you know, funerals of, of people that were my mentors. So it's very familial. And the strike kind of brought some possible enmity between which should be kind of like a family. Uh, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but but the point being, when you have labor that is also getting an education and getting training and getting professional development, unlike medical students, right, who go into debt, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, is there like kind of an what, what are the obligations, say, of the of the researchers that are, you know, some cases in biology they do get kind of exploited. In physics, it's much less so. We have to pay basically the the rate of the highest, you know, NASA fellowship to get a, a postdoc here, but what are the obligations of, of, of the laborers, if you like, in science at, at the academic level versus the mentor the, or the capital class versus the labor class? If, I, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but what, what would you see as the, as the obligations? We're all in the same you know, effort to try to benefit scientific knowledge. But what are the obligations of, say, the student researcher class versus the PI class? Um, uh, who should benefit as well? You know, should the graduate student who makes this discovery that gets monetized and the PI's name is on the patent, you know, what are the obligations as well as the, the responsibilities? 
This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Yeah, there, there's a there's an important question there also as it relates to like athletes in, in universities, right? And there's been a lot of controversy lately on the NCAA okay. and athletes can't take endorsements. And it's kind of a similar model yeah. where you're you're given uh, more than just a salary. Um, it, look, I, this is a broader philosophical question. What does someone who gets to be a doctor get versus someone who, you know, has another job that maybe isn't as fulfilling or rewarding to them? Um, you know, there, there's an element of why people take the job of being a teacher when it doesn't pay as much because it's rewarding uh, and, and um, it's, it's what they want to do with their time and with their life. Um, and I think that there's an important kind of judgment call about, you know, uh, what someone wants to get out of a job. And it's often not just the salary, it's the salary plus. Um, and the plus, I think, if it's enough uh, uh, to make up for the delta on salary relative to other alternatives or other ex- or expectations, um, it's, uh, uh, it kind of gets you there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you, you, I'll come back to your other question in a second. Um, I, I view like unions to be almost like startups. <laughs> it's like if the entire organization is dependent on the labor and without the labor, the organization doesn't work, then the labor is the company. Yeah. The labor is the startup. And service, yeah. The quote Students company. as a service. Yeah, the shareholder. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what it is. And by the way, in, in the model of kind of decentralized worlds, decentralized networks, we do see this concept of instead of everyone working for a company or working for a thing, everyone works for themselves, and then they can plug in and out of different things that they work for. Um, and it's an individual as a service provider instead of a group of people as an employee base. And that also creates a more efficient market where kind of individuals find themselves. The, the, the bigger issue with, with, with unions generally, um, I think it works well in a market. It, it works well for the laborers where there is almost a commoditization of the labor, like everyone working on a factory line. But like I've been on the board of the SF Symphony and there's a union for the, uh, the members of the orchestra. And, uh, obviously in universities, graduate students are not all created equal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that that the idea of having a union there, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it can kind of work against some people in that market. Um, I do think one of the ways to resolve that salary plus gap mm-hmm. is to create a model where you do share the IP value with the, the, the research team or the discovery team that worked on something let them participate in ultimately the commercial success of that out, of that output. Again, if there was a really great engine at all of these government or academic labs that published in an open source way the IP, they wouldn't benefit. But if it was like a, a bid model and anytime new IP came to market within six months, there's going to be an auction. People can come in, they can bid on the IP, they can get access to it. And it doesn't have to be this kind. Of, and I know that's a little naive because all the IPs clustered in different ways and it comes out in, in, uh, in a long line of stuff mm-hmm. over time and so on. So universities it can get very complex in what IP you're licensing and how, uh, but to have a value share model with the, the, the research team may solve that salary gap problem. Yeah. But as you know, then you have the problem where some researchers aren't putting out IP that, that industry wants to license. Right. You know, if you're working in anthropology, there's not going to be a lot of value 
coming out of your lab versus if you're working in pure physics. Or even in physics, um, I have two patents. They've, they've never made me a, a penny. And Elon, I know, has said, you know, patents are basically lawsuit bait. Um, and, and, you know, in physics, there's, there's precious little, you know, as opposed to biotech, where it's like, you basically sit, you know, there's a lawyer in your laboratory, uh, in many of my colleagues' laboratories, and maybe that's a sign they're doing more useful research than, than, uh, you know, pure astrophysics. But, but anyway, continue. Yeah. Look, I, I, um, I, I'm not sure, like the right answer on the, the, the graduate student strike and, you know, whether they have an obligation uh, to do research. I think for them, if the benefit of the work and the benefit they get from doing the work, plus the salary they make isn't enough, like any human, they're going to want to look for other things or try and make up the gap. So I don't know, it just seems like a pretty natural kind of marketplace dynamic to me. Uh, so, you know, we see it, we see it everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. pivoting, uh, just back to pure science for a second, just taking a question from one of my audience members, uh, that has been submitted to me. Uh, so Leif wants to know what question in science would David give his right arm to know the answer to <laughs> what material will superconduct at room temperature? Ah, awesome. Okay. Great. Like, so that, that, that I think, you know, as, as, as folks that are probably listening, know, you know, um, uh, superconducting material has has no resistance and has this ability to kind of be a perfect um magnetic field reflector and uh it's long been theorized uh, and as you know there's there's several theories for how we get there that we should be able to to realize some sort of structure or some sort of molecule or some sort of um uh, ceramic or something that can actually superconduct at room temperature because uh, the cost of cooling makes uh, superconducting materials, uh, you know, not very extensible, right? We could reduce the, the loss of uh, electricity and transmission lines. Uh, we could create levitating trains and reduce friction and, and energy needs for transportation. I mean, the applications, you know, the, the incredible applications in computing, um, you know, imagine having, a, a, you know, the equivalent of a quantum computer in your, in your iPhone. Like, I mean, there's just so much that, that could be realized if we can get a material that superconducts at, at room temperature, and there's all these uh, phonon pairing theories and uh, not a lot that's been proved and, or disproven really at this stage. And it's like we always kind of walk a little bit halfway closer to the wall uh, and no one knows how or why we're getting where we're going. <laughs> right. uh, but that, that's, a, that's a really exciting area. I mean, I was 13 years old and I had a science fair project at school and I did it on superconductors and I, I actually got the superconducting disc from UCLA, a couple of bucks or something and some liquid nitrogen from UCLA and poured it in and did a magnet, floated it. And I said... I have my board and I said, here's all the things you're going to be able to do with superconductors in the future. And it's going to totally change the world. And we're going to have, you know, it started with this yttrium barium copper oxide ceramic, and then everything is going to change. And, you know, um, here we are, I was 13. How old am I now? I'm 42. So, you know, 30 years later, um, and not much has changed, but yeah, that, that would be my big question. Yeah, it's it's uh, certainly fascinating. I always point out, you know, superconductivity is the one problem that could have been solved by Feynman that he basically failed to solve. It was solved by my uh, graduate student, uh, uh, one of my graduate school professors, Leon Cooper and Bardeen and and Schrieffer, right? Who uh, Schrieffer like the Cooper pairing? Yeah, Cooper yeah. pairing. That's right. Leon is still alive yeah. and kicking. I saw him back in May when I spoke at uh, Brown University commencement, and uh, he's a he's a character. But um, pivoting to to Schrieffer, who is one of of his uh, co-laureates. Uh, so Schrieffer won the Nobel Prize twice. Um, and he was well, first Nobel Prize he won it with uh, was with uh, William Shockley, who is a denizen of the Bay Area and uh, one of the founders of all, all, Fairchild. Yeah, Fairchild Semiconductor, which then the traitorous uh, eight, I think it was called uh, by him, including Gordon Moore, went off and started uh, you know, TI and then um, Intel. But I want to bring up uh, uh, Shockley, not for his, uh, you know, kind of reprehensible eugenicist ideas and 
and and stuff involving the Nobel Prize sperm bank, which he allegedly contributed to down here in San Diego County. Um, but but instead, on the transistor that you know he co-invented and is responsible for us having this conversation, there's about 10 billion transistors on each side of a of our screens uh, just alone. Um, and the fact that he and and basically all you know I've interviewed. 14 Nobel laureates, and I've asked them, you know, maybe sort of questions along this this front. But I think you're um, not Nobel laureate, but you, I think, in the in the realm of sustainability and and kind of financial remuneration. Look, it's important to scientists. Everyone says, "Oh, I would do it if I didn't get the prize, and I'd do it if I didn't get the money." And I believe them. But the fact is, David, that there's not a single Nobel Prize winner. In any field, maybe economics, I, I don't even think so. I interviewed Guido Imbens at Stanford across the bay from you, and he uh, and he said, you know, basically he did it for the fun of it, not for the money. But anyway, there's not a single laureate, to my knowledge, that died with a net worth greater than 10x of his, mostly his, Nobel Prize winnings. Um, which and and some are in fact we're, we're, we're almost destitute by medical illnesses. Leon Letterman, um, uh, who is an experimental particle physicist, he had to sell his Nobel Prize to fund his dementia treatments and and Alzheimer's treatments. Uh, uh, Watson, James Watson, I think, sold his for several million dollars uh, for funding. In other words. These Nobel laureates are responsible for pure technology, for, for great discoveries, DNA, the transistor, the laser, Charlie Towns, who I knew uh, briefly at, at your alma mater. Um, you know, he invented a laser, which is, you know, contributes a trillion dollars every year to world GDP. Died, again, not, not destitute, but how do you envision or how could we envision a, a model where physics could be sustainable? And that the physicists who do contribute could receive financial remuneration. Is there a, is there a kind of a marketplace solution um, to the problem of sustainability? In other words, that we we should we tax every email you know point one cents or every web uh, you know hyperlink that's clicked because it was a yeah, CERN byproduct. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, David? How we could make it sustainable? I mean, we already yeah. uh, NFT. I don't think that's a starter in many for many reasons. But can you think of ways that we can make it sustainable and remunerative to the uh, the inventor class? I um I just want to challenge the notion that the one thing is the value creator for the whole of the market. That the laser is the trillion dollar market. Mm. Um, and I'll say it like this: that there there is um this. This kind of um, motif that there's this rock star entrepreneur who builds a business and makes all this money. Yeah. And the reality is that that individual is a small member of a very large team that is tackling a very large set of problems on a daily basis, using a lot of capital to get there to figure out how do you build a business and create value, create, create market value and create a product. And that whole team is dedicating their lives to the work. And that whole and all the capital that went in came from pension funds and retirement funds because it's managed, you know, that's what VCs typically manage and, and so on and so forth. Or, or it's like large investors that, that are mutual funds that are putting money in the public company. When you play this all out, we all think that it's an individual running across the field and then they got right. the idolatry of innovators. Yeah. It's a it's a rugby scrum. Okay. <laughs> and the rugby scrum is pushing the ball down the field, trying to get this thing in the other end before they get their heads knocked off. <laughs> that's the reality of like building products and building businesses in a marketplace. And uh, the, the unfortunate reality of being a human is our brains are wired in such a way that we all think that we're the outsized contributor to that success. I, I elbowed that guy in the head. I took him out. That's how you got to the end zone. Well, only three the people can win the Nobel Prize, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the Nobel Prize problem is the same problem in entrepreneurship and in scientific research and um, 
I'll give you kind of a, um, I'll, I'll say two things. One, both Kanye West and Taylor Swift complained about the fact that they sold all of these original uh, tracks that they had, I forgot what they, the masters, yep. uh, to the record label. At the time that each of them sold their, their, their masters to the record label, they were struggling emerging artists. And they said, for giving up all of my future rights to this music, it may or may not work. And that moment, we had no idea what would come with that music. And the record label took a risk and they put a bunch of money in their pockets. And Kanye and Taylor Swift said, oh my God, it just, that money just changed my life. Yeah, they sold some call-ups. It call just option. so happened to be. They sold some call-ups. Yeah, it just so happened to be, exactly. And then the record label happened to make a ton of money. And then they come back and they're like, wait, 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 I want more of that money. And all the artists that lost, that, that the, the record label spent money on that didn't work out, they don't get to come back and demand a lot of money because their music didn't work out and they got paid and the record label lost money. The record label doesn't get to go to those artists and say, give me back my money. Your music didn't sell. Um, And I use that as an example, not to be this capitalist pig or to be disparaging. But the reality is, number one, we don't know what's going to work ultimately. Um, And number two is there's a scrum to get there. Mm. There's so much that goes into, I mean, think about the original transistor. How much does the original transistor look like the 10 billion? It's a a coat hanger, David. It's a coat hanger with some chicken wire. And then there's a piece of chewing gum in there. Oh, look, I'll put, we'll put a clip of it up here in the, in the video that if you're watching on YouTube. Yeah. And I, and I've like, I, I I can't tell you how many people I've sat at dinner with or at a poker table with, or had drinks with, or sat next to an airplane. And everyone said, I had that idea. I came up with that thing. And it was the thing that someone else turned into a big business. And even when you have the same thing, you can give the same IP or the same technology or the same thing to 10 different entrepreneurs or 10 different businesses or 10 different investors, and nine of them won't work. And maybe one of them will work. So you never know what path, what team, and what it's going to take to take a concept mm-hmm. or a discovery or an invention and make it into a business that generates money. Mm-hmm. And 99% of the value, unfortunately, comes from that business building exercise because that's where the scrum happens. Right. That's where you're hiring and firing people, burning money, iterating on product market fit, trying to figure out what customers want, taking that original coat hanger and turning it into this incredible LCD monitor that costs $1,500 that I can sit in front of today and talk to you through the air. It's like, you know what it took? How many people it took to go from that to this? How much money it took? Yeah. You know, and as much as I think that that invention is a really like powerful moment of a breakthrough, it is the guy in the coffee shop with the napkin that has the idea. And then the other guy goes and builds the e-commerce site and or 15 guys take that idea and 14 of them fail. And the one guy builds it, the guy with the napkin, you know, right. he had a great idea, but 90% of the, 99% of the value was. So it's hard to say, I, I don't believe in this whole thing about glorifying either the entrepreneur or, or the idea person. And I, I, you know, I hate this idea of the term founder, yeah. frankly. There are so many quote founders in Silicon Valley who start a company and then they're not there when the company ultimately figures out its product mm-hmm. or when the company ultimately starts making money or finds a customer or goes public. And like from the, the first 20 people to the next 20,000 people, it's a completely different work. It's, set of, it's, it's a, a completely different, different company. It's a completely different skill set. Different skill set. And 20,000 people worked on it for 10 years. Yeah. And those 20,000 people that worked on it for 10 years all contributed time and all these investors contributed money. So, you know, for me, it's not about like, how do we, you know, uh, get get things back. I do think that we need to make sure that IP rights end up in the right way, mm-hmm. that there's a marketplace to get these things going and to get people to participate. And all the universities are, are you know, Caltech has a, a friend of mine, um, runs a VC at Caltech, and it's like all, it's all about bringing Caltech uh, uh, physicists and biologists out into the marketplace and, yep. and giving them ownership of their IP. And they've got a great licensing deal with Caltech. 
they can take that IP, transfer it into startups, and then they can go and build their business. Yeah, and across um, the country, and, and, they can get, and make and make it equity and ownership. Yeah, across the country, the other yeah. school with a beaver mascot, in addition to my fair beloved uh, Caltech, where I was a postdoc uh, for a few years, is MIT, yeah. and they have the Bose, uh, you know, the Bose family of Bose uh, sound products and medical products and so forth. They have this, you know, their MIT is one of their biggest, uh, you know, effective shareholders. I, I wouldn't know how you describe it, but part of the problem is, you know, I, I would say that. You know, one of the main challenges for someone doing fundamental physics is that, or fundamental science of any kind, is that sometimes it produces technology. <laughs> you know, and so then people really have this expectation that you're, you know, you're the goose that's going to keep laying these these golden eggs. And and as you said, there there's a completely different, you know, kind of um, uh, toolkit to get from you know one customer or just the prototype, the you know the chewing gum and 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 uh, coat hanger to the you know, LCD monitor. Um, at the same time, I remember listening to a talk by Jim Simons, again, you know, grad, proud grad of, of Cal. Yep. And he, you know, and he said, um, you know, he famously runs one of the most profitable hedge funds in history. It might even be the most profitable one, um, Renaissance Technologies. Yep. And he said, you know, for second month. Yeah, for a, yeah, right. Now it's a uh, Griffin, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah. uh, but he said, you know, for a long time they famously only hired PhDs, and it was only like astrophysics. Mm-hmm. So I sent some of my you know, students to him, and and he, he would review them. Yeah. But now they don't do that anymore because they found that like they they don't know anything about business. It's a very different skill set. I found even with um, you know doing this podcast, you know, in my in my spare time, which is which is so lovely. I get to talk to so many brilliant people, including including. Um, yourself. Uh, and it's really brought a lot of joy to me, but it's a completely different um, skill set. And I'm sure you know that, like, there's no skill set, there's no job description podcaster, right? I mean, it's a billion micro skills. And I don't think we te- do a great job of teaching, you know, there's no job, there's no single job professor. I mean, I have like 80 different things from teaser to research, teaching research, the fundraising, you know, outreach, uh, but oftentimes, David, the the kind of non you know technical lab work, um, you know grunge work in the lab is if you don't do that, you're kind of looked down upon. Uh, when I wrote my first book, Losing the Nobel Prize, I went in to ask my department chair, who was the son of a Nobel Prize winner who invent, co-invented the laser, Nikolai Basov, and um, I said, you know, Dimitri, can I have some time off, you know, uh, to to write this book? He said. Um, we won't give you any time off, but we won't explicitly punish you for writing this book. Uh, in other words, th- this is not something that, you know, that that uh, a serious scientist should be spending his or her time on. And I've had that from my friend, John Levin at Columbia and, and, and Barnard and other places. But to what extent are we maybe compromising the future output of science? I'll just focus on physics by by basically ascribing maybe not the best, um, you know, kind of a- attitude or culture attitude towards those people that want to monetize or want to start, ca- you know, businesses as well as be scientists. In other words, we're not teaching them those skills, but we might also be stigmatizing. Um, you know, I don't think it's a big secret that, you know, 99% of my colleagues are, you know, are Democrat or very liberal and, and they might look down upon, they supported the strikes and so forth. They might look down upon, you know, any attempt to monetize or, or something like that as being detracted to pure physics and the reason they quote unquote got into it. Do you see it like a benefit to teaching entrepreneurship or, you know, some kind of skill set within a physics department? Um, I've seen it at a lot of places and it generally like has not worked mm. well. Um, uh, okay. So why is yeah, that? Why are they, um, why, why is I there think, a negative attitude? Yeah. So, so my, my three biggest predictors for entrepreneurial success are grit, bias to action, and narrative, uh, ability to kind of tell narrative. Mm. So grit is perseverance through failure. 
which many scientists actually do have, because most of the work you're doing is iterating, uh, continuing to kind of develop even after something fails. Um, bias to action is a little different where so much of, of um, you know, depending on kind of what science we're talking about, uh, you're doing careful planning. You don't get to do careful planning when you're building a, a startup or a growth stage business. You have to have a bias to act. I always tell people the absolute index of bias to action is the movie Groundhog Day. By the way, happy Groundhog Day. Yeah, happy Groundhog Day. Um, because, yeah, yeah. So you get to you get to basically live the same. If you could live the same day a million times in a day, you could make that day perfect. Um, and that's what a startup is. You don't know what path is going to get you to the other side of the mountain. And you have to get over there before you run out of food and water. Mm. And so you've got to constantly be looking, realizing you're wrong, turning around, going back, realizing you're wrong, turning around, going back. The faster you can do that, the more of a bias you have to responding to what the environment or the market or your product development cycle is telling you, the more likely you are to succeed before you run out of capital or time. Mm. Um, and then narrative. The person who indexes infinitely on narrative, um, so, so, so let me just say, each one of these three categories, you can index infinitely on. If you index infinitely on grit, it means you will never give up. You're out of water, you're out of food, you're out of money, and you convince everyone to keep going and not... <laughs> and not um, and you know, uh, three hundred. The movie three. Think of the movie three hundred. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's the absolute. The absolute on bias to action is the movie. Is the movie Groundhog Day, and the absolute on narrative is a guy like Elon Musk, uh, who could show up, tell you he's going to do something, and then not do it, mm -hmm. and still get you to give him more money, <laughs> and do it over and over again for ten years, and then finally he delivers a product. But the ability that he has, and Steve Jobs had, is this ability to story tell people about what's possible in the future, and the power of narrative. Mm is that you can uh, attract employees to come and help you build, get in that scrum with you on the rugby field. You can attract capital. Investors will keep giving you money so you actually have more time to get there. And ability to attract customers. Sell them on the vision and the dream of what you're building. And um, those three skill sets are independent skill sets. Of, And I'm not saying that there's no overlap. There can certainly be overlap oh, yeah. with scientists that are working in academia. But I'm saying those are the skill sets that, that predict entrepreneurial success. And there's a real question on how much of that comes learned through behavior and experience, how much of it is innate, and how much of it can be taught. Um, and that's where I think there's a challenge of like, let me just throw up an entrepreneurship school and teach people how to be entrepreneurs. I think that the, 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 these things that are necessary for entrepreneurship, all the rest of it's tactical, it's textbook stuff. It's like, mm -hmm. do this, write this plan, you know, you know, find your customer. Like, There's a lot of people that help and support entrepreneurship and development. But without those three things or having a strong index on some set of those three things, I think, um, it, you know, the probability of success is generally very low. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think these things are, are really hard to kind of find. Yeah, they're hard to find. And, and then there's work. also the kind of, um, you know, check your own kind of uh, sunk cost fallacies and biases, too, because everything you described described, you know, the systematic you know, behavior of someone like Elizabeth Holmes, right? I mean, good storyteller, lots of grit, hard worker, yep. uh, bias to action, you know, influential customer seeking. Um, and you couldn't get, like I said, a better story. Uh, and that, that brings me to my, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, kind of a, another frivolous question, but, but I'd like to know, you know, kind of um, in terms of in terms of how you systematize, you know, Ray Dalio is famous. He has a, a quote uh, that, um, you know, you should have, uh, you should, you should, a, a good entrepreneur, in his case, he's saying, should have many things that he systematizes or she systematizes very well. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, what things in your strategy and in your investment strategy or the way your thought process is, do you strategize in the mold of that famous black turtleneck wearing entrepreneur inventor 
Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, so are, are there things, you know, do you have like a, a routine? Right. Do you have a daily routine? Do you have, you know, uh, how, are you monitoring things? How do you system, what, what do you systematize? And what's your rubric for systematization, if you will? Of the work I do? Yeah, the work you do. And also, I'd be interested in your personal you know, habits, if you want to share them, like sleep um, and things like that, but, but then yeah, yeah, into investment. Yeah, my, my, um, my, my challenge is probably one of um, <laughs> orientation towards creativity. So I bias towards creativity. So if I'm not feeling like I'm endeavoring into, into, a newer sp- into a new space, like I have almost like an interest or an addiction for new things, for a new space. Um, it, you know, maybe there's this intellectual curiosity problem that drives me to do that. But it's, it's, it's coupled with this idea that I have to make stuff or enable the making of stuff too. Um, and so that makes it hard to have, um, although someone did once tell me who actually wrote a book on the psychology of creativity, that um, having a system for creativity can actually enable more creativity than having the absence where a lot of people right. want to kind of have the absence. Yeah, of having creativity. a framework, having a, um, a painting size, right? Those are constraints, the constraint model, you yeah. know? Yeah. So look, I mean, my world is fairly, um, I mean, if, if I were to kind of try and classify it, I've got companies that I'm an investor in or that I helped start that I'm an investor. In. So I own stakes and companies that I'm involved in and um, they have different need states and they, they are very dynamic. And as their need states kind of, increase, I need to spend more time with them. And that, that's why it's, it's not as easy as just every week I check in with each one. Sometimes I don't need to spend time with them. Sometimes there's a crisis and I got to spend all week with one of them. And then the work I can help them do is either recruiting or raising capital or product and strategy and customer stuff. Um, and so that's kind of spending time with, 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 with companies. Then the other one is making sure that I have adequate capital to do the work I want to do. So, uh, you know, we, we raise capital from other investors and we use that capital to, um, to support the work we're doing. And then the third is the, mo- the most interesting, which is kind of exploration of new opportunities. And exploration of new opportunities is all about thesis development. So um, I tell people like our job is to connect the dots uh, where we spend time reading uh, papers or meeting with scientists or academics or researchers or engineers. Then we separately spend time with interesting executives or entrepreneurs. And we separately spend time in the markets understanding the market, the businesses that are operating in these markets very deeply. And then if we can see a connection, like if you took this engineering capability and this scientific discovery and you put them together with this team, you could change that market in that way. And that's the kind of uh, connections that we try and make, which is what are we seeing the connections between that other people maybe aren't seeing? And that then forms the basis of a thesis. That thesis can then go be tested or invested against. Mm. Um, and so we would then deploy capital into an existing team uh, because they map to our thesis uh, and then they can go and kind of test it or they're executing well against the thesis and we want to support them and fund them. Or we can help kind of build a team and start a company to go execute against that thesis. So that's kind of um, how I would classify yeah. how I spend my time. Yeah, it's a system. It's a scientific method. You're basically applying a scientific method approach to it. I want to ask you, I've interviewed a few billionaires on the podcast, Jim Simons, Michael Saylor, Tom Bilyeu, and others, uh, unicorn founders and hedge fund, you know, all, all different all different types of personalities. And I always like to ask them, you know, from your perspective, what what is the purpose of wealth? Um, you know, we often, you remember the original uh, Wall Street movie with Gordon Gecko and, and Charlie Sheen. You know, Charlie just wants to, you know, he's making all this money. He wants to become wealthy. So he can ride a motorcycle across China 
which uh, Ralph Potts is a fan, is a good, well-known uh, author, podcaster, et cetera. And he said, it costs about $5,000 to drive a motorcycle across China. Like, in other words, you could do that right now. You don't need to become a multimillionaire, as Charlie Sheen wanted to do in, in, um, in Wall Street, the original one. But he asked Gordon in that movie, if you remember, he asked him, you know, like, what are you doing all this for? Why are you ruining so many lives? <laughs> I'm not accusing you of that, David. But um, there's only so many yachts you can water ski behind. So I want to ask you, you know, in your, in your, for, from your perception, what what is the purpose of wealth? Um, like, I think that there is, I'm I'm uh, I'm a believer, and I'm aligned with this concept that humans are wired, life living organisms, and you could actually trace this back to principles of physics are oriented around um, uh, desire. That we 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 are we are programmed to have this. Um, the Zen Buddhists talk about it as dualism, like this idea that there's. Um, uh, two sides to everything, when in fact, they are the same, okay? Um, the yin-yang, the, the yin-yang, or they have elements of the same. Yeah, the, and the, the whole purpose of Buddhism is to see um, the unity of everything and, and not what the human brain is wired to do. And we're wired in that way because we have a body and a not body, right? We're, we're wired to see what we are and what we are not. We are wired to feel what we have and what we have not. And as a result, um, we see what we have not and intend to have more. To, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's this innate human desire scarcity, uh, yeah, scarcity. Uh, for more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and um, you know, there's always something on the other side. There's always something more. Um, and th that's why we are successful in the sense of kind of thermodynamics. Like we're a feedback loop. Like we're really good energy consumers. We're really, you know, and as a result, we, we multiply. And, and that, that's what life is kind of predicted around. Um, and so on that premise, I think that there are three kind of intangibles that humans um, desire in a way that's fairly unconstrained. Um, one is uh, fame, which is recognition. The other one is influence. And the third is, is wealth or assets, uh, whether that's food or money or, or, or whatever. Um, and uh, so that's more like, you know, um, how much stuff do I have? And those three things are, um, they can be traded for one another. Like if you have a, a lot of influence, uh, you can get paid by people to influence a group of people, right? Your you definition of an influencer. Um, you know, if, if you have a lot of fame, um, you know, you can turn that into money, right? You can get paid to do things. Um, uh, if you have a lot of money, uh, you can buy ads and put yourself on the TV and become famous, right? And so I think that, um, you know, there, there, there is this kind of innate human orientation around having more stuff. And then we rationalize why we have those things and we rationalize, all humans rationalize all their behavior in some like altruistic way. Like no one's innately evil. No one thinks I'm going to do a bad thing today. Everyone thinks they're doing things for a good reason. Good intentions. Yeah. And so what we do, yeah, good intentions. So we have this kind of unconscious orientation and I would call it kind of almost programming. I mean, I don't know, you, you probably know Jeremy England. And, yeah, you know, he was what, the what he's kind of, on the podcast. Uh, oh, he was, yeah. And um, I think like there's this idea that in, in – um, in physics, we're just oriented around consuming more energy. And then Nick Lane, I talked about his book on my podcast, uh, where, you know, if you think about it, it's quite simple. Um, the feedback loop will dominate in a kind of chaotic system, the feedback loop that can self-replicate. Yeah. So the self-replicating feedback loop wins. And so it, it absorbs all the energy and so on. Anyway, we're oriented that way. And then we rationalize our orientation, our desire for more stuff, uh, whether it's fame or influence or money. Um, because we think we're doing a good thing. And then everyone's got their own story on that. And I could tell you my bullshit story, but someone else will tell you another bullshit story. 
around what do I intend to do with my wealth? What do I intend to do with my fame? What do I intend to do with my influence? Why do I want to be president? I want to help people. Why do I want to have all this money? I want to help people. Why do I um, you know, want to have um, all this fame? Because then I can help X, Y, or Z. Right. Everyone's got this kind of altruistic intent that they rationalize this orientation around. How much of it is ultimately realized or not is honestly, there's a lot of motivation and energy that they put into it and, and luck is associated with it on what they can actually realize in terms of impacting the world. But like most people, we want to have an influence on the world. We want to see the things around us, the things that are not us, be influenced by us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we use one of those three kind of vectors of uh, aggregation uh, to, to, to intend to do that. So, you know, I could, I could tell you a bunch of stories around nonprofits. I could tell you about my interest in creativity and changing the world, finding problems, solving problems. That's what I want to do with my wealth move humanity forward, have less suffering. Those are all the things I'm super excited and interested by. Um, and, you know, I think like my, my again, I, I, I try and be very honest about how much of this is me rationalizing my role in the universe. Like we always, like we all do, right? Like I want to, like even scientists, I want to have a discovery that can move the world forward, that can help us understand the universe better. I mean, that was always my intention as a kid. My interest as a kid was like, I want to understand how the universe works. Right. And then I want everyone to know that. And then, you know, and that, that's my fame, right? Like in, in, if, I, if I look really deeply as a kid, I wanted to be famous for being Einstein. Like I wanted to discover stuff and then be famous. And if, if we all examine our in, innate kind of, right, if we all examine this innately, I think that there is one of those three vectors that we orient ourselves around, and then we rationalize the altruistic intent of it. Right. We ba- we backfill in the, the narrative to uh, support the <laughs> the uh, innate desires that we have, which I don't think are bad. I mean, I talked to a very, very famous uh, astrophysicist at Cornell, Lisa Kaltenegger, uh, recently on the podcast. And she uh, she's the director of the Carl Sagan Institute there, which is you know focused on uh, looking at approaches. You know, we got to get you guys some some besties. Eventually, get you some bestie finger puppets. Here. This is the greatest swag. I'll, I'll awesome. uh, but I, I said awesome. to her, you know, I said to her, Lisa, if you had a cha- choice between um, be finding slime mold on you know some exoplanet Proxima Centauri B uh, at the end of your career, or and then getting a letter from God that says there's no other form of life in the universe, especially technological advanced uh, aliens. Um, and that would be what choice number A, letter A, is you, you get to discover slime mold and you're the first person in history to ever discover life on another exoplanet. Or B, uh, your great, 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 you know, grand PhD daughter, she discovers aliens, you know, with extraterrestrial technology a thousand years from now. Which would you choose? And she was like, both. And I'm like, you can't choose both. You know? But I, I get, you know, it's the instant gratification that, that goes to the fame. And, you know, as famous, I think uh, Bill Murray once said, you know, if you, if you want to be, you know, famous, try being rich first, you know, because that gives you most of the benefits of being, uh, of being famous without any of the unwanted benefits or without many of the unwanted benefits. Um, so I want to uh, pivot from, from wealth to an audience question. Uh, good friend Kelly uh, G from uh, Brooklyn is a huge fan of yours. Uh, she wants to talk me to ask you about super gut which you know i got a glass of it here i actually have munique uh which i uh you know still has such good shelf life that i can still drink it even though it's been rebranded as super gut i believe is that right 
Yes, okay. called Super Gut now. So she, better, better name, easier. Yeah, easier it's much better. Yeah, yeah, Super. Anything with Super in the name is going to be good. Um, and then Grand Unified Theory. I'm glad that you put the the gut in there too, because you know we we all want a Grand Unified. <laughs> you go. Uh, so she has she's wasted you know millions of dollars on on probiotics, um, and uh, and she wants to ask about prebiotics versus probiotics in the microbiome. How, uh, what what about yeah. that? What are the opportunities there? Why, why did you invest in this company as a case study, maybe for my for my listeners? Uh, can you talk walk us? Yeah, there's our, a- our thought process there. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. There's a ton of, so 20 years ago, the human genome um, uh, was fully sequenced yep. and it was published, I think, 2003, right? 2002, yep. 2003. Um, and it cost like $100 million to sequence the human genome at that time and took months or years to, se- to put all the sequences together. Yep. Now, digital technologies have driven the cost down of DNA sequencing faster than Moore's law in the past 20 years. Um, and that's because... DNA sequencers are optical scanners, and so you're generating gigabytes of data, transmitting that data, storing it, computing it. All those underlying digital technologies have dropped in cost quite substantially. And so the cost of DNA sequencing has gotten really low, the speed has gotten really high, et cetera. As a result, we are able to see the physical world, the DNA in the physical world, at a resolution that was never possible before. Much like telescopes or observatories have allowed us to peer farther back in time, deeper into space, wider, you know, um, uh, wider kind of point of view than we've ever see, had before. We can do the same by looking down into the physical world. And the physical world is just littered with microorganisms, with living biology that does stuff and creates molecules and consumes molecules and does stuff all around. Mm-hmm. Um, in the human gut, there's about 40 trillion bacterial cells, plus or minus a lot of kind of controversy on how many there are roughly 10 trillion human cells in the body, also a little bit of controversy on that number, but call it, you know, roughly equivalent order of magnitude number of cells of bacteria and humans. Those bacterial cells are making molecules and absorbing molecules. Mm -hmm. And then they're also interacting with and regulating human cells in a really powerful way. And we never had the ability to see these bacterial cells and understand what they are and what they're doing. So in just the last couple of years, because the cost of DNA sequencing has come down, we can now peer into the gut and see what bacterial populations are there and what they're doing. And this is not just true in the human gut. It's also true in agriculture and soil. So we can now see in the soil what microbes are maybe fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere, making it available to plants and improving plant health and productivity, what um, uh, microbes uh, are um, stimulating to the plant, what microbes are keeping bugs away, et cetera, et cetera, what microbes are bad. And so the cost of DNA sequencing now, you can get a sample done for five bucks, let's yep. say, and it used to cost 5,000, okay? So now all of a sudden we have this insight with large data sets and with large data sets, we have the ability to mine those data sets and identify trends and identify you know, what's going on and start to pro- test and prove things, scientific method. So the number of papers on the gut biome has kind of grown geometrically last couple of years. Um, and so it turns out that the human gut microbiome, which is all the microbes that live in our gut, are very significant and important influences of our of our health in our body. And um, 
they are doing all sorts of things. They are absorbing molecules, they're consuming molecules, they're, they're converting molecules. And um, they, they can also have a profoundly negative effect on human health. There are certain microbes that have proteins on their surface that look like proteins of the human cells, of certain human cells. And for certain genetically inclined people, your immune system attacks those microbes in your gut. And as a result, it makes antibodies to those proteins that mimic microbes in your body, and that's called protein mimicry. And then it causes an autoimmune reaction, and you have autoimmune uh, disease or inflammation or what have you. So there's all these discoveries that are being made in, in multiple sclerosis, <laughs> in um, lupus, and Sjogren's, and like um, all these kind of autoimmune diseases. And then there's also all these benefits that we're discovering that certain types of microbes can profoundly improve our sleep, improve our mood, that there's this whole gut-brain axis that we can actually regulate dopamine and serotonin right. And these important neurochemicals by stimulating certain. Right. Um, the whole thing, gut decision. Let me, you know, yeah. go with your gut, right? I mean, that has wisdom. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. So we asked ourselves a couple of years ago, I think it was 2017 or 2018, I was reading all these papers and I was talking with this guy in the space. We're talking with lots of people that understood the gut microbiome and what's going on. And we were like, maybe let's do a personalized probiotics business. So we'll, we'll take your poop, we'll measure it, and then we'll give you personalized probiotics. And, you know, a bunch of things happen. We realized number one, probiotics generally do not inoculate the gut. Because the gut microbiome is like a jungle. There's all these trees and, you know, the, the monkey climbs the tree, eats the nuts, the monkey poops, the poop grows the tree, the jaguar comes in and eats the monkey. There's a whole ecosystem yeah. going on of, mm -hmm. of, you know, a regulatory, what's called a microbial consortia or consortium um, that, that's kind of regulating one another. And so if you throw a house cat in the jungle, the house cat's going to get eaten. It's not going to survive. You can't just throw a single bug in the gut and expect it to inoculate. So paper after paper after paper has demonstrated that, that probiotics, that actually putting microbial organisms, even if they're alive in your gut, they don't stay there, they don't grow. One thing that did show up quite significantly was you can actually change the feedstock in your gut and profoundly change that ecosystem as a whole. That's this prebiotic term. And one of the big prebiotic kind of concepts that people had done a lot of papers on, a lot of work on was resistant starch. No one had built a business selling resistant starch you know, in a good, easy, consumable way for consumers. And when you consume resistant starch, it increases these gram-positive bacteria in your population, in your gut. They secrete short-chain fatty acids in your bloodstream. Short-chain fatty acids drop your blood sugar, regulate insulin sensitivity, all these sorts of, you know, re reduce inflammation. So I was like, this is the better business. We don't need to do this crazy poop testing thing. Like, you know, let's, and so that's how we ended up starting the super gut. But it really is this kind of, and we have another business in the soil microbiome space where we actually measure farmer soil and then we give them a readout that isn't just giving them all the Latin names and the population counts. They have no idea what that is. We translate that into a very specific set of decisions that they should make to drive better outcomes in their farm. Hmm. Um, and that company is called Pattern Ag. So, you know, that, that's, that's, I think, all enabled by this trend. So, I, you know, speaking to our point earlier on, we kind of looked at that scientific trend of what's going on with DNA sequencing costs and all these discoveries that are being made. Separately, we looked at the markets, and then we found the right teams to go and execute against these business ideas. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the... the the connecting the dots concept. Awesome. Great. Um, okay. So the next thing uh, that would be really interesting to talk about is again in the biology space. And I want to push back on uh, some of the pushback maybe that you got recently on all in for, you know, your, your conversation about, about COVID-19, I should just say COVID-19. 
19 you know just to confuse youtube because i had i had put it this way it's it's it, this is just you know the world's smallest violin will be used but i i did a, um i did an episode with charles seif who's a professor at nyu and a big critic of of um of, of berkeley labs uh, nuclear fusion you know claims and so forth we'll get to that in a minute but uh we we did a podcast about about that result and and the and the um the laser fusion last last month announced uh, by the doe etc and uh, and it got slapped with a climate warning and uh, and a uh, you know implication that we should uh, consult with uh, with Wikipedia and the United Nations about climate change. And all we said was you know if fusion would work, then it could be as you pointed out uh, two months ago or so on the on the podcast, you know could be one of the vectors that we use to decarbonize the atmosphere and and actually desalinate the oceans, uh, et cetera. It could have vast positive impact. But anyway, I want to touch another hot button third rail issue with a superconducting room temperature maglev train and that's gain of function what's wrong with gain of function i i i had covid over the summer you know a bunch of kids running around they all got caught my wife didn't get it which was kind of interesting um and she swears it's because of this rabbit's foot that she wears on her face no she wears a mask like 24 7 uh it's it's a thing uh but um yep. again if i i lost my my sense of taste and smell and i and i I lost five pounds. I dropped five pounds, David, from my double chin to my stomach. No, I'm just kidding. I, I lost a couple of pounds. And, and I thought, well, this is great. You know, what if, what if like they did us a solid? And what if this will be the new, uh, what are they, uh, Ozempic that Jason uh, Calacanis is so infatuated with? Anyway, what's wrong with gain of function? I mean, could we use it to, to benefit, to do things like weight loss and so forth? So uh, gain of function, I would say, is this kind of narrow view of a broader um, activity that goes on in um, protein engineering. Okay, let's call it that. Um, so, and, and it is a ubiquitous tool set uh, that is used in labs, academic research, and commercial labs around the world uh, to discover and create proteins um, that can kind of uh, evolve our species with the new therapeutics and, and so on. So, so let me just kind of dig into the, what goes on for a second. Take a, um, uh, like how is protein made? We've talked about this on, on our podcast. I'll, I'll just, just do a quick yeah. uh, five seconds on this. Fresh, basically protein. Dumb it down for theoretical cosmologists, please. Yeah, right. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, proteins are coded in genes, um, in DNA. And uh, every uh, three letters of DNA can be deemed a, a codon, um, and there are, you know, call it 20 amino acids, and you can kind of think about a segment of DNA being uh, a copy of it kind of coming off as, as an RNA, and that RNA goes into a ribosome, and every three letters are selected, and an amino acid is printed. And so you get this bead of amino acids, and that bead of amino acids, because of uh, the uh, kind of uh, electric potential of the different uh, molecules, kind of collapses on itself and forms this three-dimensional complicated molecule called a protein and that protein actually is a machine it does stuff physically biophysically it does stuff in the body yeah. and it can break molecules apart it can stick molecules together it can carry molecules around so all these different proteins have different function it can bind to stuff so the the right surface on a, on a protein can stick to say a cancer cell or stick to say a sick cell or you know do something interesting in the body so evolution has driven the discovery and the development of, or sorry, the development uh, of proteins um, that do all of these incredible things in biology. Um, and 
we now have the toolkit to create novel proteins and use those to try and do new things. So we have created novel enzymes that we use in laundry detergent that are really good at breaking up dirt. Mm-hmm. We have created um, novel biologic drugs that can bind to cancer cells, and then the body's natural immune system will come in and kill those cancer cells. We have created um, novel proteins um, that can replace dysfunctional proteins in our body and, and, and you know, have a profound benefit on people on sick population. The way that we kind of design these proteins and the way that we kind of explore what protein mutations might do biophysically or what protein mutations might allow us to do is we change the DNA. And we change the DNA very rapidly. Either we mutate it or we specifically edit the DNA because we have tools to do that now where we can edit DNA very specifically. And we express lots of different proteins. Mm -hmm. And then we assay them or measure them and we see what they can do. And that allows us to do drug discovery, uh, all this other sort of stuff. And um, Francis Arnold won the um, Nobel Prize a number of years ago. You you, you may know her from. I know her, yeah. uh, She was the uh, widow of my postdoctoral advisor, Andrew Lang, who unfortunately took his life in 2010. Yep, I know Francis. Yeah, and and, yeah, and and, you know, her her directed evolution um, work is, you know, almost mainstay now in a lot of research labs around the world for doing things like protein discovery and the exploration of where proteins are going to go and what they can do. Mm hmm. So the term um, gain of function is a, the very narrow version of that, which is how do we evolve proteins or change proteins to see how the proteins on a virus are going to change what that virus does. And so it's about exploring the domain space of the potential of a virus as it evolves on its own. Because the little DNA that makes up that virus or the RNA that makes up that virus is going to evolve on its own. Random mutations will cause new viral proteins to emerge in nature. And then those new viral proteins will the ones that are really good at, you know, infecting their host and, you know, persisting will end up dominating evolutionarily and they will, you know, and that, that DNA or that RNA will start to persist and kind of become um, dominant. And so we have the toolkit to kind of explore that ourselves without waiting for nature to do it. So it is a good philosophical question on should we do that and to what extent and what are the limitations and how do we control that? Mm. But the fundamental toolkits to do that are ubiquitous. This work of um, uh, you know evolutionary design is ubiquitous. It's used in many labs, from industrial biotech labs making enzymes for laundry detergent, all the way through to biologics labs, all the way through to you know viral academic research labs all over the world. So the idea that this was like a special, crazy, one-off idea that these guys did this gain-of-function research is like totally missing the broader picture of what goes on in biology today, which is that this is ubiquitous. Uh, evolutionary kind of protein exploration and so on. Um, and the particular application to seeing where a virus is headed is a, kind of a narrow view of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I'm not going to, like, I mean, we could debate the, 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 the merits and, and, and whatnot of doing that. Merits and demerits, is that the, yeah, merits and demerits, um, of, of, of doing that work for, for, for viral evolution and predicting viral evolution. Um, is there a benefit in doing so and getting ahead of the problem and figuring out how we can stop the virus from evolving or having a, a vaccine that's ready for if the virus evolves. Maybe, but then you have a Brad Pitt 12 monkeys problem where maybe you create the problem by doing that. Right. And that's what a lot of people are theorizing happened with uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is that it was kind of a, uh, you know, an evolutionarily kind of designed virus that got out of the lab. And so, you know, I don't know if you saw the movie 12 monkeys, but like, you know, you basically like in reverse time, you're trying to solve the problem and you create it in the process. Um, 
And so it's an important question. Can you put guardrails around this? Can you put barriers around this? Certainly, it makes sense to, 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 to say that, yes, you should, and yes, you can. And, you know, this idea that the Wuhan lab in China, um, the French who were supposed to be kind of partners in building this lab out, came along and said, this lab is not <laughs> safe. Right. It should not be open. They stepped out of it. There was a lot of warning signs and, mm-hmm. you know, should more action be taken? Should we have a, a tighter set of guardrails? Almost like we have the uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Should we have kind of a viral regulatory commission? Right. Um, and then uh, have a, you know, a much kind of tighter framework for how we do this work. Um, but remember, the, the Pandora's box is open. I mean, these yeah. tools are out there. And I think, uh, you know, in a world where these tools can be harnessed in an offensive way, we have to be thoughtful about what's the right defensive approach. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Babylon B, you know, story, which is kind of like a conservative version of the onion. It said, you know, Pfizer announces new vaccine effective against virus it created in the lab. Uh, but, you know, Jay Bhattacharya was a past guest on the podcast, professor at Stanford, MD, PhD. He said, you know, gain of function is fine, more or less, uh, but you shouldn't be, you know, on the on a base layer, on a platform that's a human pathogenic, you know, as, as susceptible to human pathogenesis. So I think that's an interesting, you know, division line. Um, so I want to check, David, you still good on time because uh, I'd love to yeah. keep going. Okay, great. So uh, you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, the, the proteins and how they evolve and how they react and what they do. Now, recently, we've had things with, uh, you know, AlphaFold and, and um, you know, uh, all, all sorts of breakthroughs involving AI and, and that can do such incredible things. Uh, of course, a big thing that you have talked about a lot is is GPT and, and artificial intelligence. I want to ask you, you know, based on your physics, you know, perspective. Do you do you remember from uh, from undergraduate or, or you know your encounters with Alex, uh, our friend Alex Filipenko, what Einstein uh, called the happiest thought of his life? Do you do you know what that? Do you remember what that? I was? I, I don't know the answer. No. What yeah, it was that, that an observer in free fall would experience no gravitational force. Um, he called that the happiest thought of his life. And I hear all this stuff from from friend and past guest Max Tegmark at MIT that we're going to have AI, AE, we're going to have artificial Einsteins and so forth. But I'm always, you know, kind of not very sanguine about that because, you know, you look at that statement by Einstein, there's a lot packed in there, but two things in there are, you know, he felt happy, <laughs> you know, he actually enjoyed the sensation of, of having this new knowledge for the first time that the sensation of freefall would experience the result in that experience would be no gravitational force. And that led to Einstein equivalence principle, which underpins all of GR. But the question is, you know, to what extent is that replicable in a human, both the happiest thought and a a visceral sensation that we as scientists do get guided by our senses? Um, You know, so in other words, can we can we expect that we would have a happy thought thinking computer or a computer that could visualize free fall? Is that or is that just completely beyond what we can do? And that effectively what these computers are doing is just a, a level of computation that no human can match. But the creativity that you mentioned earlier is never going to be there. I'm not convinced about this notion of um, creativity per se. Um, I, I always point people to this video by this guy who calls himself an illusionist his name's darren brown out of the uk oh yeah yeah and um it's on youtube and there's an episode where or a a, a clip of this episode that he did years ago uh where he took these ad agency executives these guys are like creative directors and they make ads and they're like the best in the industry and they're super creative and they come up with all these great ideas and he goes and picks them up puts them in a cab takes them into his office and in his office he's got a whiteboard and then he's got another whiteboard covered in a curtain and he says guys you 
I need you to create like an ad for me, come up with the name for a pet cemetery company, come up with a logo, come up with a catchphrase. And they spend all day and the, the cameras capture them ideating and going back and forth and like theorizing and like exploring all the domains of their creativity. And they finally settle on this great concept of a logo and a name and a catchphrase. And then he comes back hours later and he flips up the curtain and he had it identically correct. And the way he did it is on the cab ride over. And I don't know how real this all is, but it really spoke to me on the cab ride over. He kind of had these kids walk in front of the cab with this t-shirt that had this logo on it. He had them drive past the sign. He repeated the same word over and over on the buildings. Like, and so there was this like subliminal programming that happened <laughs> where by the time they got to the building, they were unconsciously deeply influenced by this image, this name and this catchphrase. And they kind of felt like they were discovering that through creative process. Mm. I think like th this, th there is this notion of like the human mind having to some degree, um, you know, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll use like a, a Jewish term of like Chabad, which is like knowledge, understanding and wisdom, right? We, right. we absorb this data. We, we gather this knowledge, we synthesize it together. And then we have this kind of outlook and, you know, there, there's these, these uh, sleep and dream theorists or scientists that say, it's the synthesis, the output that ends up being stored in your brain, not the actual data. Uh, and that's effectively the neural model, right? That's mm. the neural network. So to some degree, humans are programmable and we are programmed. And we are programmed to have these kind of synthetic outputs from the inputs that we receive and so on. What I think is missing from AI, and, and I never really have had anyone explain well to me uh, in terms of AGI, uh, uh, yeah. you know, artificial general intelligence, is the association of the training data set being the limbic system of the human body. Right. Like, the reinforcement, you know, we, they talk about, sorry to interrupt, but they talk about reinforcement learning, yeah. but they never mention that reinforcement is coming from some human, day, you know, overla overlords, right? No, that's right. And, 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 and it, what, the, the training data, by the way, just to be clear, like if you watch a baby, you, we have kids, you have, uh, you know, uh, I'd say we, because I know you have kids, I have kids, yeah. and you watch your baby, the baby first starts interacting because there's a physical visceral reaction, there's a limbic emotional reaction through their physical body to some stimulus from the outside. And then we kind of build these much more kind of complicated thoughts and complicated networks, but it's all still driven by the, the physical limbic system, by the reaction to the exterior that we physically interact with. That's right. That training data ultimately realizes as these kind of concepts, and then we have conceptual training, but that's often the output of like these core engines. And I think like so many of these data sets that I, you know, that we use as training data are often the actual outputs. And then we train on the outputs and we don't train on the actual human input. What, what is the, the right kind of human um, data set to train on? So if I could wrap a human, uh, an MRI around a human brain from the point of development through to the point of being an adult, and I could, um, you know, capture all the things that I, I believe that that computing, by the way, and digital technologies allow us to capture all the things that the human body captured. Yeah. We just don't have the response mechanism as data today to train against that. And so I can capture feeling, I can capture temperature, I can capture light, I can capture smell, I can capture molecules, all these things I can capture as an input to my uh, my model. What I'm not capturing is the training data on what happens in the limbic right, system yeah. so, that makes me say, ow, that burns, you know? Right, they always say, oh, and, this, and by the way, yeah, yeah. Like, why does the baby run out, move out of the way when someone comes running at them? So, um, you know, the, 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 the AI can be trained on there's a body coming at me, but the association of I can get hit and that will hurt is missing. Right. And I think that's the under, the underlying that, that's kind of 
lacking is that training data. How do we get that training? Does that ever actually resolve? And does that actually build models? Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff that AI is going to be incredible at. And, and like this whole synthesis of creative process and creative thought, all the higher level abstraction stuff, it, it, it's just data processing. And the AI will beat us at that. Yeah. There's something, however, that's missing in terms of AGI that is deeply associated with the human physical self. And um, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced. Yeah, they used point. to say on Twitter, you know, you weren't. I'm, like, I'm also, I should also say I'm very naive on this stuff. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, as yeah. am I. I mean, I just like to be, you know, put on my uh, pundit hat. But, you know, I used to say uh, on Twitter, it used to be forbidden to say learn to code. But now journalists are just going to learn to prompt. And uh, and furthermore, when you talk about these training sets, they'll say like this AI solved this this problem that would take humans a hundred million years or whatever ten years to solve. And I'm like, well, but what, did you include the ten years of ten PhDs that it took to come up with the level of input programming <laughs> that was used to make this model? Right. And then, yeah, you know, my last kind of thought on this subject before we turn to just a side application of of AI, which I am more sanguine about, but uh, the the notion that um, you know that that a computer can beat a human at chess or go or protein folding or whatever is well known. But my question is that, you know, can a computer create the game of chess? Can a computer create the game of go or, you know, in that same way, can a computer create, you know, Einstein uh, tensors and, and the Einstein field equations? I, I'm not, I'm not convinced, but I, I am sanguine about one thing, but I'm, I'm also kind of anti-sanguine. We, we use um, at NERSC, which is a national energy research supercomputer up there at Berkeley, uh, colleague, close colleague, Julian Burrell is one of the directors. We use it for all the cosmology data sets. It's kind of uh, input processing. They have the world's, you know, third fastest computer, which tomorrow will be the 18th fastest computer. Um, all sorts of really amazing processors up there. Uh, and it's a, it's a facility for the government, but we get to use it on energy, you know, subslice. But we found that actually a lot of computing things are getting slower <laughs> because uh, even though the comp raw horsepower is increasing as Moore's Law, but the, the problem is that the demand is also increasing faster than Moore's law at some level, because these things become so uh, both, both, you know, attractive for researchers to use and so much more powerful, they can solve more problems. So it's, it's this positive feedback cycle in a way, but the actual raw, like if you just translate it to what we academics care about, papers, citations, H indices, whatever, those are kind of saturating based on even given that these computers are improving. And I start to think about why that is. And, and maybe in the, in the health space I had on Eric Topol, a year or two ago, and, and he's a big proponent of, you know, we got to get computers out of the of the patient-doctor interaction because you just have, like, uh, a doctor looking at a screen and a patient looking at another screen. Um, but I'm a private pilot. I fly little tiny Cessnas around Southern California, and it's not really well known, but every time I take off, I have to listen to this, like, FM radio station for about a minute. Uh, and every time I come in for a landing, I also have to listen. It's called the NOTAM system. Notice It used to be called Notice to Airmen. Pete Buttigieg and others changed that to notice to air missions recently, and it was famously in the news. It shut down for a couple hours in January, and that led to snarls in the aviation administration. But that thing you actually have to listen to on a radio, an analog radio, in the cockpit. And you have to tune in the radio with a dial or type into a keypad. And I'm like, why don't I have this Alexa, you know, device or something? You know, I have one in my in my room right now. I, I have a different word than Alexa, so I won't trigger, but I'm probably triggering millions of people around the world listening to this. Um, but, you know, I should have an, a virtual co-pilot, right? The number one contributor to safety of the airlines versus general pilots like me is that there's always two pilots. Every plane you've ever flown on, David, has two pilots in it, unless you've been the pilot, right? So, uh, but why not augment 
for both professional pilots, commercial pilots, and private pilots like me, have a little assistant in the cockpit that knows, oh, Brian's coming up on uh, Oakland Airport. He's probably going to land there. You know, he put in his flight plan, which I have on a computer. He should, I should really dial in the NOTAMs and listen to it for him, decode it visually, which we can read, you know, 10 times faster than, than listening um, uh, or writing. So why don't we have those things? And it came up as well in the medical, you know, why isn't there an AI Alexa in the, in the room listening to Dr. Topol, you know, prescribe whatever Vicodin, I don't know what he does, but uh, I should really check in on him. But, uh, but the point is, why don't we have that? And I think it comes down to lawyers. I, I think like the, the, the aviations, you know, there's hundreds of lives on every commercial airliner. What do you think is the impediment? Why aren't we actually scaling out so these things are actually useful? So I have a, a virtual lab assistant or, you know, virtual uh, co-pilot or virtual physician's assistant. What's the impediment? Is it you know, legality? And if so, should we be hopeful that's going to improve well, with passage of time? Yeah, look, I mean, these are, I, I mean, I told people, if you, <laughs> I think about the, the next evolution of software, AI is just the current catchphrase. There have been these catchphrases over the years and data science and big data, you know, machine learning, uh, algorithms and yeah, you know, machine learning. Like there's always some hypey bullshit that goes on and sorry, if yeah, okay. bad, no, no bad words allowed. So, um, so, so a lot of people are kind of using it, but at the end of the day, it's all about tools are about providing leverage to humans. So um, there's an evolution of a, of a tool set that gives us more leverage. And I, and I give people the analogy, like, uh, uh, people that used to make um, visual images were painters, then there were photographers, and then there were, was Adobe Photoshop. And Adobe Photoshop would kind of digitize and pixelate images, and you would kind of change the pixels. But then there was this higher-order tool set called Kai's Power Tools, uh, developed by a team out of uh, another UC team out of UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. I believe they were UC Santa Barbara. I know they were based in Santa Barbara. And, um, and Kai's Power Tools was this plugin for Photoshop. It was a set of plugins. Mm -hmm. And what it was, you know, a, a Photoshop... An image is just a, a matrix, yep. and then it would do some transformation on that matrix and generate a new matrix. And you know the, the statistics uh, were coded into software, and those statistics were used. The statistical formulae were used to transform the matrix. And now you have what looks like a motion blur, mm. or a Gaussian blur, or um, you know a pixelation effect, or a sharpening effect, or a softening effect. So there was all these Kai's Power Tools effects, special effects you could add to your photo. And prior to this, a, an Adobe Photoshop photo editor would have to go in and manually change the pixels and kind of use a bunch of these, you know, Adobe Photoshop tools to make those changes. So Photoshop totally transformed the leverage potential enabled by uh, Photoshop. Now the best users of Kai's power tools weren't necessarily the best photographers or even the best pixelated, pixel editors. It was the person who had the best ideas on how to use the tool. Right. And the tools, uh, now you could do all this other cool right. stuff and we could extend ourselves into doing higher order stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, we've seen software introduced that allowed us to do things like autopilot and flying mm -hmm. um, and now autopilot in driving. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily fully self-driving, but it's not you have to do as much driving anymore. It's providing you more leverage. Um, and I think that it's not about kind of on or off. All of these tools are going to integrate into our everyday life. Uh, commercial markets, capital markets will drive interest. You as a pilot will be willing to pay for that AI-driven kind of capability. It will find its way into your cockpit because you do have a regulatory problem with flying and with driving and so on. So some of these things take a little bit longer to get approved than stuff that can just make its way in the market like a new software editor or photo editor and so on. Um, but I think that's my general kind of orientation around what AI is. It's a series of, uh, you know, software and, and, and statistics and algorithms enabled in software provide us this kind of ever extending 
um, leverage uh, with our time and with our uh, um, abilities as a human. And we always end up leveling up, right? And we're going to level up going forward. I tell people we're kind of entering the narrator economy where we no longer need creators, people that create stuff. The software will create the the script, the music, the movies, the, the visuals. And I, as a narrator, will simply tell the software, you know, pan left to right, go up 30 degrees, change the character, make her a little angrier right now, mm-hmm. uh, give her a Brooklyn accent. I mean, I will now be directing my computer to make a movie for me. That provides me leverage, and it also enables more people to become um, um, uh, directors of movies. Uh, yeah. You know, there's only probably 50 people that direct a movie, or 150, or probably 5,000 people a year that'll direct a movie. Now there can be five million, and the, the software will render the movie for you. And prior, you know, there were only maybe 5,000 people that could uh, edit photos, and now there's five million people that are editing photos using this toolkit daily, or using uh, five billion or a billion people that are using Google Photos and Apple Photos to edit their photos every day now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you, you, when, when humans level up through kind of the evolution of software as the current iteration is AI, um, uh, not only does it provide us kind of more leverage, but it also provides more access and more people. And, and then we all kind of transform our, our lifestyles. Uh, so I don't know. That's my, that's my orientation yeah. around this. And I, yeah. Everything will unfortunately eventually devolve to pornography, right? So that's been, you know, the history of technology yeah. from TV to VHS, <laughs> to DVDs, and then the internet. And now, uh, unfortunately, they're going to be making movies, David. I think you're right. But I think it's going to be personalized in a, in a non, non-kosher direction, shall we say. Okay. Quick question from a, uh, an audience member. And just a reminder, you can always submit questions to me and guests when I post them on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Brian Keating, uh, YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating as well. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible. And don't forget to come back for part two, where David Friedberg answers Brian's existential and audience questions. For a chance to win your very own bit of space dust in the form of a meteorite fragment, subscribe to Brian's mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. Thanks for listening. And remember, always be curious.